the women make up for 52 percent of the population there is i believe a lack of political will to really empower women at various levels this concept of honor killings one death every month where a woman is either uh, assassinated by her husband or by a uh, concubine as we say living partner or ex-living partner the ex-husband actually cut the neck of his wife in public in a shopping mall and uh, another one was caught on camera where he came because the wife was had was has filed for divorce against him and he came with matchsticks and kerosene and a knife and stabbed his wife in the back if you look at our constitution it says very clearly that there should be no discrimination on grounds of sex and gender we find there has been discrimination in uh, employment laws we find discrimination um, in various sector in the application of the criminal code welcome to thinking through with lj i'm your host leopoldine geronimo and this episode was produced by fatma awadala i am tempted to learn a little bit or perhaps more about mauritius the topic is Women and Laws in Mauritius, a sophisticated complex. To shed some light, we have Mokshta Pertab, a lawyer, a long-term professor. She's been teaching for more than 25 years while also working in the legal framework of Mauritius. Welcome, Mokshta Pertab. Thank you so much, Leopoldino. I'm very happy to be here with you. Just so you can tell us more, we have our first two questions to introduce us about the land, the Mauritius. Yes, definitely. Um, so Mauritius is a tiny island, which is uh, 720 square miles off the coast of East Africa. So basically, we are just a dot near Madagascar and uh, two hours from South Africa, two hours from Mozambique by flight. Um, so the capital city is uh, Port Louis, because Louis is uh, after Louis the Fourteenth. We have been uh, fortunate or unfortunately, uh, I would say, uh, we have been colonized by both French and British. The French came in first in the 1700, after the French Revolution and uh, looking for the i mean looking for spices in india so mauritius was the destination where they would be uh, filling up with uh, provisions and water and all this and that is how there were french settlers who came and cultivated sugarcane then in uh, they brought in the slaves from africa which were slaves from the west african countries and from some from madagascar then in 1810, we had, uh, of course, there was always battles between uh, French and British. We have got around 125 or more shipwrecks around Mauritius from those times. And uh, um, the British took over the island in 1810. It was the Acte de Capitulation, which means that we, as you notice, we speak both French and English. We are bilingual like in New Orleans, 
and uh, so the the british they kept all the laws and the customs of the island please note that there were uh, there were no inhabitants let me bring in a few elements so that you can catch them as you tell the context of mauritius and we are honoring international women's day obviously it it's not supposed to be something of one day of one month but anyway since that's what we have we will work with what we have a month a day to honor the women that we know the women that we don't the women that we will never hear about and to shed some lights on on women's issues across the black continent and dive into some of the structures that continue to create and maintain existing gender gaps uh, violence um, exclusion of this uh, group of people, individuals uh, whose daily life is made of justifying their existence, justifying their capacity, justifying their legal rights, human rights, whether in a small or global scope. Where do Mauritius women fit in this paradigm? Okay. Um... To, to really explain, I need to get back a little bit on the, in the historical part, you know. So um, just taking it back to the British period, because to understand the history, you need to understand the people, you know. And uh, um, the British brought the Indians. I am from Indian origin, five generations born in, brought up in Mauritius, for example, you know. And so... When we look at the women, the people who were brought in, whether as slaves or as indentured laborers, in 1968, with the independence of the country from the British rule, this population of 1.1 million people now, going towards an aging population, the women make up for 52% of the population. We have more women, but the women we are—it's—it's it's, uh, we are a, a very diverse uh, women in this country. We are women from African origins. We have women from uh, white, Caucasian, women Indian origin, and we are an island also which follows a lot of religions. And we live all—we call the Rainbow Nation. We live peacefully, cohabit a lot of cultures and religions cohabit together. Now, when you speak of the of the Mauritian woman, uh, if you look at uh, what, uh, what, what, how would I define a Mauritian woman? I would say a woman, Mauritian woman is which, whatever her religion, whatever her background, whatever her cultural heritage is extremely resilient. At the same time, she's a woman who is uh, quite submissive in a way, given exa- again the background. Because uh, the laws, the laws which are there, which have come, it has been in a very sporadic way to empower the women in this country. And we live in a very patriarchal society where the women have been accustomed, if you want, to accept certain things. Now, out of this population of 1.1 million the majority of the populations come from the Indian subcontinent, from India. So therefore, we have also brought in a lot of challenges, also cultural negativities from our Indian origins, which is there, which has now perpetuated over all over the island. 
for example and uh, okay so so again coming back uh, to where do we situate ourselves we are because we are very submissive in general women in mauritius are tend to be kind of having an attitude of uh, submission in a way of accepting things i would say of tolerating a lot of things it has been that uh, we have very few women in politics one of the major uh, la- uh, weakness in our system is very few women enter politics due to patriarchal reasons or other factors cultural reasons family reasons uh, we have a very high, strong concept of jimun kipudia which is in our creole language it means like people living in a small island with an insular mentality always think like what will other people say if i do this the the you know the outlook of the neighbor is always ever present in the actions of any woman so the woman will always prefer to toe the line although this is changing um yes so if i may say changes have come in in the year 1980s with an improvement in the conditions of women with the improvement in uh, the marriage laws and the divorce laws in 1980s and uh, now uh, we have gone through a phase of uh, we always had a lot of violence against women but now we have gone through a phase where we have been noticing an escalation in the seriousness of violence and we have been noticing a lot of femicide in the country see I know that you you've authored a book and and I will ask um that you you talk about it a little bit women's and laws in Mauritius and you have been working for more than two and a half decades as an interdisciplinary lawyer bringing this field upwards right but the world economic forum has ranked Mauritius 105 out of 146 has positioned Mauritius in 105 out of 146 countries in the global gender gap next and from what you explaining to me it tells a lot of the efforts that are still in place and need to go why in your opinion did the country rank in the lowest performing third because you see there are factors in between and those are really relevant um, if if you come up with them to at least discuss and explain to people what is going on um it's it's not easy it's quite complex i think it's a sophisticated complex issue as you said you know and uh, as it's entitled the 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 thing is um we as i said to you we live in a patriarchal society whether we like it or not where we have also uh, we are very much controlled if you in a way by the outlook of others the perspective of others so that is the social aspect and the cultural aspect which are very very strong now regarding the gender gap the gender gap uh, or the world economic forum has highlighted that it is especially in the in uh, uh, in politics in women representation in political uh, field 
also uh, there has so I'm, I'm coming back to these main issues which have been identified we have uh, look, I'll just take it started from there if you look at our constitution in our fundamental rights sector section 16 says very clearly that there should be no discrimination on grounds of sex and gender okay now the problem is that unless and until i feel there is no gender quota the major political parties in general elections are not going to fill in as many women even if they say it number 2 so already that there is this uh, kind of subconscious bias of women representation and representing others number 2 women we have we have a very highly educated population 99% of our population is educated up to uh, age of 18 a levels and all but the problem is what happens is that despite girls performing so well up to their a levels when you look at the job market women tend to go into jobs which are much more um which i mean women tend to not really look go into uh careers or focus so much on to reaching the top and breaking the glass ceiling so much so that there has been for example under the companies uh, act there has been uh, uh, a section of the law which has uh, which has uh, stipulated that there should be at least one woman at the board level for example so if you look at at uh, discrimination first of all we do not even have a gender equality bill despite mauritius having signed all the international treaties and i will focus here on the regional treaty of the maputo protocol which is your country leopoldino mozambique <laughs> and uh, yes so we sign all the treaties but because of our dualist system approach we have in the law we first need to domesticate those treaties by a national law and the domestication job has been taking so long that we signed the the cedo back in 1984 1985 i think and up to now we still do not have a gender equality act so so there is i believe a lack of political will to really empower women at various levels of course i won't i will not generalize but when you look the like for example laws of marriage uh, the laws of divorce uh, alimony and all this the civil laws have have improved have changed in the 1980s to uh, empower women by giving a uniform civil code to every woman and rights under this uniform civil code but then when we look at other areas of the law we find there has been discrimination in employment laws we find discrimination um in various sector in the application of the criminal code and especially we find discrimination in the implementation of laws we have got a lot of law for 
like domestic violence, for example, which is one of the major uh, problems we have in this country. It has even been considered to be a national crisis. And there is a high-level committee right now directly on gender-based violence, directly under the prime minister, to show how serious this problem is. But then we have the laws, the laws are there, but with the defective or faulty implementation of the laws, um, the, the violence against women, for example, continues. Mauritius is also positioned in 111 in economic participation and opportunity to women. That speaks to the political empowerment. And while you were explaining what's going on, I wanted to understand the advocacy work, and that's a question that we also have here, listing those achievements that have happened so that we, we don't we don't necessarily perceive that there has not been a lot of improvement. I'm glad you brought them up. How those improvements happened, uh, what I want to capture there is the lessons learned through the exercise to advocate for these improvements. And then if you see what's going on that has not improved, why not follow the same processes? Empowerment of uh, women. There have been a, a movements, I would say, uh, women NGO civil society movements to try to improve uh, conditions of women and uh, also to try to amend the laws so that there can be equality of chances or equality of opportunities for women. However, when, when, you, when you're talking, talk, that we're talking about advocacy movements, in the, like I was saying, in, in the 1980s, it was more regarding marriage and women who were thrown out of the house by their husbands without any kind of support and all this. The problem remained that even if the laws came and were there, the problem is that women are still facing uh, violence in the home, in the domestic violence or facing pro, uh, facing all kind of challenges in their lives because we do not have enough support. For example, in cases of domestic violence, uh, there, there are a few shelters. There's one halfway home. There are a few shelters around and there is nowhere to go for a woman. For After six months, she has to leave. There is no support system in a way. The social security system or allowances which the government gives show the government is, has put uh, systems in place to give to provide for social security, to provide for uh, shelter, police, uh, police uh, uh, help, assistance. But, but these are not sufficient. It is so minor sometimes that many, many women actually withdraw their cases and they go back to their husbands and uh, violent husbands, I must say. And in the last two years, we have been noticing a lot of feminicide cases. Women are being actually killed by their husband, at least a case every month, one death every month, where a woman is either uh, assassinated by her husband or by uh, her concubine, as we say, living partner or ex-living partner. And in March 2022, which means last year in March, there were four femicides. Recently in October uh, last, last year, 
a woman, a man, uh, like an, a, a, the ex-husband actually cut the neck of his wife in public in a shopping mall. And uh, another one was caught on camera where he came because the wife was, had, was, has filed for divorce against him. And he came with matchsticks and kerosene and a knife and stabbed his wife in the back. Luckily, she survived. So in another example, uh, this man was waiting uh, at the bus stop for his girlfriend who had left him to come and he was trying to stab her. So what we are noticing, and which I am noticing because I work in this area, okay, is that there is an escalation of violence in Mauritius against women. We're talking about gender-based violence or domestic violence. I'm looking at that the most gruesome was this police officer, a police officer who took his ex-wife who had left him because he was violent, put her in his car, made a video on Facebook forcing her to say that she was having an affair and then killed and burned her in that car. And the video on Facebook, and she's pleading for her life, saying, I have never had an affair. I don't. I am sorry. Whatever it is. And he killed her. And this is a police officer has done that. So there is a, uh, what I feel the society, uh, that's why I'm saying culturally, this concept of honor killings, which is very Indian and subcontinent. So there is something which is culturally, um, which hasn't been explored, by the way, because when you, when you were talking earlier and we have not got sufficient data, no research in these areas of feminicide in Mauritius and in the area of really exploring the social and cultural impact which is causing this uh, whole, um, uh, this, this kind of, of upsurge in, in killing of women on grounds, on, on, and I would say on, on excuses that a woman is, uh, is having an affair and therefore she should be killed. Now, what is surprising, if you look at the criminal code in one of the sections, I don't remember exactly which section, but I can send it to you, it is a defense, it is an excusable defense in law for a man to say that, for a man to kill his wife and to kill uh, the lover if he catches them uh, in red-handed having an affair. So do you see, do you see how it, it is, uh, and you're asking my opinion, my observation, I, I, my observation is that when I started to work on domestic violence and on violence 25 years ago as a young lawyer, just out fresh, and I used to go to police, uh, to, to prisons, and then I used to go to hospitals and all that. At that point in time, we were telling these women at the grassroots level that, you know, the men can hit you, can slap you, can push you. Now, I have got my own NGO called Empower. I just started it last year because I'm really worried about this. I'm concerned about the situation. And when I now train the women, sensitize the women, I'm now teaching them, Madam, please know 
when it is time to walk away. Otherwise, you're going to lose your life. Because the escalation of violence is, is no longer a slap. It's now a knife. The guy is actually going to take a knife and stab. And this is what we have noticed, and there is no research up to now on this. And this is something I am very, very concerned about, and uh, that is, uh, I think this is our, our primary cause of concern for us is this, this uh, problem. No, that's, that's very deep, and, and I'm glad you mentioned um, that there is no research, because then that takes us to learn a little bit about your work. Two elements, actually, I find them uh, crucial to share with the audience and, and then prepare our expectations of what's coming. First, your organization, which is there since last year, Empower. What kind of work do you do? Okay, thank you so much. Um, this uh, my NGO. We have started this NGO. In, uh, we have been meeting more or less like a group of women concerned uh, for the past four years. But we registered in December last year. It's called Empower. And we are working on the well-being of the family. Because if you want, and, and our focus is really like, uh, it's, it's, it's well-being of the family, women, children, and men. So we're looking at it in this, uh, in this aspect where we really want to improve conditions whether it is for the woman, so reduce the violence, empower the woman financially, teach her a skill. We have, in our group, we have got uh, hairdressers, beauticians, so basic skill to financially empower the woman so that she can stand on her own feet and not sit there until she's going to be uh, suffering from violence in all forms and ultimately be killed. You know, the other thing we do, we also work a lot on children. I have worked a lot on child sexual abuse in Mauritius. We do have a lot of cases of child sexual abuse for a small island like this. And it affects all the communities, all the groups, all the, uh, and, uh, and it's it, here, it's a question of really sensitizing people and sensitizing people to come forward. You know, what is the problem, Leopold, you know? The problem is also that people do not come forward to report cases. A woman goes to the police, the police will say, Madam, but you come from a very good family, everybody knows you in the village. If you do this, if you put this, uh, uh, you're going to file a complaint against your husband for domestic violence, then he will lose his job in the government, or who, who is going to pay for your children's uh, uh, education? So this is, there is this kind of, uh, uh, I would say, demotivation for women to come and to report matters. And also regarding children, children suffering from child sexual abuse, often, uh, I mean, most cases have been incest cases by family members and people, and, and people don't, uh, the, I mean, the family want to kind of say, it's a family matter, let's just, you know, why should he talk about it? He's going to grow up and the cases are going to come in five years' time or six years' time. By then, you know, it's a, it's a thing which is gone. But, uh, I, mean, I mean, that's just complete. This is the, what we are working on. We are working on really children and women. And, of course, uh, to be able to uh, improve the situation, you need the men. You need the men. You need the men to commit to have 
this well-being in the family. You cannot say a well-being of the family is men, women, and children, you know. So that is what we are doing. We're doing sensitization, and we're doing all this uh, uh, going around uh, in villages, uh, meeting with women, meeting with people, pro bono legal clinic, giving advice, psychological help, and all these things, you know. Well, I was going to ask uh, uh, about the, the legal structure, right? I was at some point um, with positive hopes when you were mentioning all these achievements uh, from the burden of a colonial legacy and then a mix of ethnicity and cultural context. Uh, as you speak of this, uh, I, I really do not know how, where to position them. But the level of atrocity is that um, a police officer that, or just a person can walk in a mall and, and, and kill the wife right there. So, uh, I'm wondering, what is the legal structure governing this type of crimes, whether it, because in some countries, uh, I think Mozambique too, uh, back then, my, my friends were discussing about uh, making certain crimes, uh, categorize them as public crimes. So there is no way back once anybody, like anybody can take the case forward, even if uh, the victim yes, is sanitized go down and in this happens a lot in Mauritius don't have it so so basically um, see we have got a very unique legal system because our past history of colonized double colonization so our system is hybrid it's inspired from both French law and English law like when we look at criminal laws for example uh, so, so basically, the substantial laws are going to be French civil code, uh, the Mauritian civil code, the Mauritian code de procedure civil, and then your criminal law is also French inspired. And then the procedural laws are going to be English laws, evidence, uh, public administration law. Now, what you mentioned in Mozambique, where you have a public public crime, so like a like a person who doesn't have a local standi can take a case forward. Like I can take a case forward as an NGO for a victim of child sexual abuse. This is not possible in Mauritius. You need to be a party. You need to have suffered a prejudice personally to be able to do, to bring a case, okay? But recently, um, it was interesting because we have, we're testing the laws. Uh, by the way, I will also have to stress something important because I work in gender field. I'm a consultant for gender in Africa. I, I do GBV, I, I train the police on GBV uh, on Africa and in Mauritius, in India also I've trained. Um, we cannot talk about gender and also not talk, talk about the LGBT community, you know. And in Mauritius, it's impossible for anybody, as per the laws, because we have got a strict law of sodomy, so therefore uh, homosexuality is completely illegal. Now, there are right now test cases coming up. There are three test cases on homosexuality at the Supreme Court. I don't know which way. Our Supreme Court tends to be very conservative. I don't know which way it's going to go because also we have a society which is also quite patriarchal and conservative. Okay? Um, regarding, yeah, so regarding this uh, violence, like, like I said to the police, the police form part of society and they are also patriarchal. This, uh, the, the, in the villages, most of the time, everybody knows everybody. 
So maybe the police officer has played football with the perpetrator who has beaten up his wife, uh, black and blue. I had a case like this, where this lady was raped and sodomized and beaten black and blue by her husband. When she went to the police station, the police said, why you are doing this? Why are you bringing a case against this guy? He's a well-known man in the village. You should think about the reputation of the family. So, so um, it is difficult for a woman to really uh, use the law. The legal system is there. I, 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 I don't say that we have a very bad legal system. Our courts work. Our uh, judgments are strong. Supreme Court has given very strong judgments in cases of uh, violence uh, against women leading to death. Okay, but at the same time, at lower in the lower judiciary, in the lower courts, where the woman goes for a domestic violence to get a protection order, many a time the woman is discouraged and she is indirectly uh, encouraged to. Re, to withdraw her case against the perpetrator for X, Y, Z reason given to her. And then uh, the man, the perpetrator, will come and say, sorry, I will not happen again. And then the case is withdrawn. And then the man goes away and he's never convicted of domestic violence. And you know, also the other thing about, I find there's a big lacuna in the law because what happens if the man and because see the judge the magistrate who looks at those cases and violence he has to be satisfied or she has to be satisfied that there is an apprehension of danger to the victim now many a time the woman has been beaten so badly that she won't go back to living with the man she will go and live with her parents or she will go and live elsewhere and therefore the judge will say, okay, there's no apprehension of danger, and that's it. So there's no protection order. But then we have to understand that the man can still be verbally violent, use online, use Facebook to keep on harassing the woman. You know? So all these, all these things have to be taken into account. I find that this thing about giving an undertaking and when the man is not convicted of uh, domestic violence, I think this should be changed. Because we have changed the laws, for example, on pedophilia. We have got now a register, a sex Child Sex Offenders Register Act, which means that if a person is convicted of uh, sexual abuse of a child, his name is going to be written in a register at the police station, and the police will inform and uh, Interpol, if that person leaves the country and goes abroad. Okay. This this is really good to know because then uh, it takes us to your second major product there, your book. Tell me about your book, Women's Laws. Because uh, from what you have been telling me, I'm curious to learn how you bring that into uh, a dictatic or uh, a book that can go viral, right? Because I'm waiting for that book to be part of our next discussions as soon as possible. Th thank you. Thank you very much. So I have, I have written this book um, during the lockdown period 
because that was the time I had time to really think about and look at all this uh, work I've done for the past 25 years on women in different countries and then also in Mauritius. And uh, I came back to Mauritius seven years ago. And I came back with a different mindset and a different perspective. And then when I saw this, that the violence has not abated, but the violence has escalated. And that's got me to let, think about writing a book about what are the rights of women in this country. So I have analyzed in this book the position of women from different aspects of the law. What is the position of the woman or the Mauritian woman? Or it can be the, the woman can be also a, an expat, a, a permanent resident, a foreigner living in Mauritius, you know, uh, in the constitution. So analyze the constitution. I have analyzed uh, uh, the criminal law, the domestic violence laws, analyze their weaknesses and their strengths, and also the major landmark cases, uh, analyze civil law, so marriage laws, divorce laws, I can't touch on everything in civil law, but main things, and also uh, IT laws, how do, we, how do we protect ourselves against more and more of online sexual harassment, online, uh, all the online cyber crimes against women, um, which, which, are, which are there, it's coming, it's coming big time in Mauritius also. And uh, then I have looked at labor laws, employment laws, that uh, despite that Mauritius has signed uh, the ILO Convention on uh, harassment and uh, we have got a section on violence at work and all these things, but we still find that uh, the conditions at work need to be improved to prevent harassment and sexual harassment of women in the workplace. So my book kind of uh, looks at all the aspects, you know, which can, which of law, which can uh, fit in a woman's life, from uh, from the from from, I would say, from her birth to her death, basically, you know, and right now I must I must also add that I am I have already uh, got the first edition of the book, which I'm not releasing right now. I am waiting because we are waiting for in March. Uh, at, for the International Women's Day, it has been announced that there are going to be a major changes in the laws of Mauritius, especially regarding uh, domestic violence. So I'm waiting for that to come to be able to release my second edition of my book, which will be released uh, most probably by May. And it will be my pleasure to to send a book for you across. No, definitely. For sure, the... We will find a way to get that book. <laughs> uh, we just need to know when it's coming. I, I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting for for let's because you see, I, I, this, if the major reshufflement of laws regarding women, so I ha, I'm just waiting for that to happen so that I can you know get it really updated. At the at the, the position of the law will be 2023. You know, March 2023, basically. Well, I'm glad you have the book and then there's the organization coming. And if you look at the members... Can I, can, I just, uh, can I just add one thing I forgot to say to you? My NGO is part of SOAC, which is a coalition, a solidarity of women uh, rights NGOs, NGOs working on women rights in Africa. So we are... From Mauritius, we are the only NGO in this uh, coalition, and we are working to really um, 
sensitize people, obviously, but also to make sure that the government and the, the country know about the Maputo Protocol. Because it is important that we understand that the uh, women rights of African women uh, are the same as other women, but there are other things which are also equally important. We will discuss the Maput Protocol too, uh, but we will wait your book to come first and then we'll, we can see how we blend in that because uh, when I hear Maput Protocol, <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm familiar with the document, but I'm, I'm also curious to see how uh, it works out in each country, in each organization. There. Well, in Africa, a lot of work is being done on the Maputo Protocol. I can tell you that because I'm in that the coalition on Africa, you know, and uh, there have there has been a lot of work. First of all, starting with the training of the judges on the Maputo Protocol, so that they implement uh, the Maputo Protocol, they at least mention the Maputo Protocol and take that into consideration in passing the judgments, you know. So there has been work. Work has started on the Maputo Protocol in in on African in African countries. Yes. I think I'm at this point satisfied, happy to learn from your achievements a little bit about Mauritius. And obviously I'm not happy for what is going on. I'll just ask you, uh, if you put all this achievement together um, and then the work that you are doing, what challenges would you uh, put forth so that other advocates of the case can be aware, can learn. Some of those things might not be as evident um, as they seem, especially if someone is not geographically in Mauritius, but it's working on global issues in gender-based violence. It's working on uh, uh, honoring uh, the people who go through a struggle that was not supposed to be a struggle. I mean, let's discuss famine, right? Uh, but then discuss a person killing the spouse. It, it takes us away from um, really things that are out of our control because that is something that a human being can control. I choose not to kill because it's my decision, but I don't choose to starve, right? Um, anyway, uh, I was just asking you to... Um, pinpoint a few challenges as, a, as an expert of more than two decades ago uh, when you reflect and, and recently you were speaking at a university there. You probably have been asked questions and please. Uh, I have been speaking at the universities in various universities in Mauritius because we have got offshore campuses of many universities, UK universities here. I've been speaking on sexual harassment because the violence against women start very young. It starts with sexual harassment when you're, you're young, you're, you're 14, 15, and it becomes a form of coercion or controlling behavior, and then it goes to violence and the pattern is created. But what I find it's also, um, you know what is lacking? is actually proper research is lacking. And when you're telling me how can other people uh, working in GBV in the world can actually contribute. I think I would I would really suggest uh, 
that uh, if you can do some research, gather data, because whatever data we get are the data from the police, and I don't trust. I do not trust the official data at all. I work in the sector. I do not think the data are correct. They reflect the reality, you know. So I would suggest there has been recently they have set, they set up this uh, uh, gender observatory on, on an observatory on gender based violence. So they are trying. They go, I think they are trying to kind of get some data, get some some research. I haven't heard anything really whether on this gender observatory is working or not for the time being. It's just been set up. I believe that we should be able to do something uh, on a comparative level. How does it happen? What are the solutions brought in Europe, in US, in Latin America, in India, in other countries which have the same uh, cultural issues, cultural challenges, social challenges? And what are the so in Africa, obviously, and what are the solutions which have proved that they worked, you know? So that is, that is, I think, one area which is, because it is not, see what happens is I cannot impose something uh, which has maybe worked in US, but maybe not, will not work in Mauritius because the context is different. So we need to have customized solutions to the country. And I believe research is the way. We need to research, we need to carry the data, we need to come up with really uh, proper working, uh, you know, I mean, and uh, things which actually work. And, and of course, sensitization is a must. Sensitization of women, sensitization of the population, sensitization of younger, of younger women. This is what we are doing through our sexual harassment training in universities and all. Let's sensitize them when they're still young. Because, you know, let's not create the next breed of women who are going to be victims of violence and femicide, you know? That is what we are doing. There you have it. Let's have customized uh, solutions for the country. Let's use data um, to, to do research and work. Let's gather the data. Gather the data first. The real data. The real data. Yeah. I like it. I, I like when you, when you, <laughs> when you pointed uh, how much of credibility the data can have or cannot have. And I think I'll, I'll stop here and let you go. We had the honor to host Mokshta Pertab, a two and a half decades GBV consultant, barista, a legal and judicial trainer, teaching and training, particularly in the areas of gender laws and environment law. This is something that we did not talk about, but I'm hoping that soon we'll be exploring after we uh, discuss the book. I'm your host, Leopoldine Geronimo, and this episode was produced by Fatma Awadala. <laughs>